Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Maggie Smith. She's the award-winning author of You Can Make This Place Beautiful, Good Bones, The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison, Lamp of the Body, and the national bestsellers Goldenrod and Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity, and Change. A 2011 recipient of a Creative Writing Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, Smith has also received several Individual Excellence Awards from the Ohio Arts Council, two Academy of American Poets Prizes, a Pushcart Prize, and fellowships from the Sustainable Arts Foundation and the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. She has been widely published, appearing in the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The Best American Poetry, and more. Welcome, Maggie. Goodness, thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk about your new book and your work and all memoir things. So for those who have not yet gotten a copy, can you share a bit about your newest book, You Could Make This Place Beautiful? Sure. You know, I don't really have a neat sort of concise elevator pitch for this book yet. (laughs) (laughs) Just like I don't have um, a neat, concise summary of the life that went into Mm. the the book. Um, So maybe that seems fitting. But um, I was thinking maybe a good place to begin is with the epigraph for the book, which is from the poet Emily Dickinson, and it's Mm. I am out with lanterns looking for myself. I started writing this book because I truly thought I wouldn't be able to heal or find peace until I had my life and my marriage and in particular my divorce, um, you know, quote, figured out. Mm. And so I thought that I could set the story down and kind of move on from it once I had it solved. Mm. <laughs> um, funny, huh? Mm-hmm, um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's and it didn't really work out that way. No, you know, no spoilers. But I I didn't come away with all the answers, but I did come away with a greater sense of peace than when I sat down mm. to begin writing this book. And so. When I'm thinking about what this book is, quote, about, which is tricky, you know, poems aren't really about anything. So it's it's hard to kind of encapsulate something of this size, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the longest thing I've ever written. But I think it's about cherishing yourself, really. And, and as Mary Oliver put it, um, you know, cherishing your one wild and precious life. So I'm thinking that this book really at its core is about homecoming and and kind of finding my way back to myself through all of this. What's interesting also, there's so much about it that we could talk about, and I'll do my best to cover a bunch, but you were in the midst of it. You know, you were in the storm as you were writing it, and it's, it's obvious, and you talk about that from the very beginning, that, you know, this is unfolding as you go. And so was that was that any kind of a different experience for you to be in so tr- so much transition while you were writing it and be able to share the finished product as a work of transition? I think so. I think so because I kept thinking, well, this would be a different book if it were written 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. And I had this sort of greater distance and perspective to step back from the thing mm-hmm. and maybe see it differently or see it as a different version of myself, yeah. you know, much later and with a sort of like cooling Mm-hmm. of all of the lava <laughs> of yeah, the experience, yeah. you know, a hardening maybe even. 
And, and that wasn't really possible because I really wrote my way through it. And I think the form, to be honest, is, is part of what made that possible. You know, the form for me as a poet too is inseparable from the content. It's wedded. It cannot be divorced from, from the content. So when I write a poem, I'm thinking about what form will work best to embody or enact the content. And I, I talk to my students a lot about that too. So is it couplets, right? With lots of white space to slow the poem down or, or give the reader literal breathing room? Or is it a prose poem that's um, speeds the, the narrative up? Or is it just sort of one column of text that doesn't give the reader any kind of breaks or relief with stanzas? And so writing this book in the middle of it, I think what I was tasked with was how to accurately embody or enact the lived experience. And so what I landed on with the vignettes was a form that feels psychologically true to me, if that makes sense. Like the experience itself was not linear. It was marked by complexity and fragmentation and recursiveness and second guessing and trying to trying to understand and trying to see the connections between things. Um, it was a spiral sometimes or a series of waves sometimes, but it was never a straight line. And so for me, the writing had to move the way that the experience was moving. Mm -hmm. I think it's so effective too, aside from just the actual content, that structure worked just so beautifully. As a reader, I so appreciated the times that you went back to similar forms within, like you would come back to a certain type of page and so that the reader could be reassured and say, oh, this is kind of where we're gonna go in this section and now we're gonna go back to a longer section and now we're gonna just get a quote. And I just, you know, that it does come across as sort of this collage, actual mid-storm type of experience and I don't think it's easy. I mean, just as a comment, like, I don't think it's easy to write from a place like that, but this is a wonderful way to do it. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad, I'm glad it worked for you. No, I, I, I kind of think it's not for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Like I say this all the time as a writer and as a human, I'm not for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that this, I took a lot of risks with the form of this book that I knew would either really resonate with some readers and and probably wouldn't with others and that's and that's the risk you take when you take risks uh, yeah and you know it's interesting because I generally am a very linear storyteller in my own work and I I'm drawn to this like old-fashioned sort of template for stories yet I really enjoy writing a lyric essay doing flash trying to break it up a little bit and so whenever I read a nonlinear or kind of a collage book I'm just grateful that someone took me out of my linear journey, which is what I always rely on, you know? So it's like a breath of fresh air. Oh, I love that. I mean, I think in this book, I'm sort of still playing by poetry's rules or or maybe maybe they're not rules, but but playing by poetry's possibilities. So thinking about, thinking about compression and concision and metaphor and image and pattern and repetition, like these are the tools that I really rely on as a poet, which is, and probably will always be my home genre. Mm -hmm. Like that's mm -hmm. that's where I'm comfortable. So I I don't think I could have done it another way because that's that's where my brain goes when I'm trying to sort of puzzle something out. 
Yeah, and in that sense, it's almost like the book is a giant poem. Yeah, it's yeah. A giant, a great big giant poem, right? Which is, I think, what everyone would love to read from you because you are a poet. So from the beginning, you let the reader know, I'm going to quote, that you say, this isn't a tell-all because all is something we can't access. You write, there's no such thing as a tell-all, only a tell-some, a tell-most, maybe. This is a tell-mine, and the mind keeps changing because I keep changing. And that's the end of the quote. So when did you first understand this, and why do you feel it's important for writers, uh, especially of memoir, and their readers, to keep in mind that it's a tell-mine? Well, I mean, you know, this is my first memoir, maybe my only memoir, who knows? And I, I think <laughs> one going, never knows. One never knows. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, there's so many other stories. Yeah. Um, I, I think I was really cognizant of some of the preconceived notions about memoir. And I was thinking about how many memoirs are marketed as tell-alls or something, something mm. about the hook is like, now you're going to get the story, right? Like you think you know the story, you don't know the story. So when you buy this book, you're going to know the story. And it felt important to me to acknowledge on the first page, and in fact, in the very first sentence, that tell-alls don't exist. Like I don't actually believe that it's real. It's not a thing because we can only ever speak for ourselves. We can all go to the same concert, we can all sit through the same class, we can be at the same dinner table during the same conversation, and then go write two sentences about what happened. And it's not going to be the same two sentences. And, and you know, there are certainly objective facts, mm -hmm. but there's no objective truth. And that, mm -hmm. that depends on perspective. And and I think it's dangerous to believe that your experience and your story is the story. And so it felt necessary for me before telling my truth, mm -hmm. my mm -hmm. story, which is particular um, and specific, to just go ahead and say, I'm not claiming this to be the anything. I'm claiming it to be mine. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. mine right now, too, right? Because mm -hmm. again, in 20 years, maybe I would have a different grasp on some of the aspects of of these experiences we'll see mm -hmm. and I think that really is important especially for memoirs who worry or get tripped up on the idea that well what if I don't remember everything exactly or what if someone says this isn't what happened what you just said is so important because it really is about what we make of what happened in the time that we're writing it and making sense of it and it's so fluid and changing and so and and that actually feeds into this next part that you write that I want to ask you about which is quote I'm trying to get to the truth and I can't get there except by looking at the whole even the parts I don't want to see maybe especially those parts and so as a poet and as a now memoirist can you talk a little bit about why writing requires that kind of honesty yeah, I mean, I, I think I think poetry prepared me pretty well to sit with ambiguity. I mean, that's that sort of the business. And I think it prepared me to be vulnerable, although I will say in memoir, I miss the cover of the speaker <laughs> in poetry. Um, I really miss even in a, in a poem that has an I and is in first person that it's it's still the speaker of the poem um, and not quite the writer. Uh, I, I miss that cover, even as thin <laughs> as it may be in, in memoir. But I have to say, like, I don't think poetry and memoir 
in particular require a special kind of honesty, but I think living does. <laughs> so yeah. so if you're if you're writing about your life, you're not doing yourself or the reader any favors by lying. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what the point is of writing a book or even a flash essay or a poem about yourself and your life where you're not telling the truth as you know it. Now, it might not be the whole truth. It might not be everyone's truth, every character's truth, every player's truth. But mm-hmm. I don't know what the point would even be of of doing that. I mean, the, the only reason that you would lie in a piece of writing about your life is as cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just not interested in that. Mm-hmm. Well, also because going toward the part, at least I've experienced going toward the parts that you don't really want to look at or kind of where the meat can really be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to just write a book about one's life that only talks about the, the like, best flattering stories? You <laughs> I know, know it would be, like, so boring. I can't even. <laughs> I'm just like, wow. This is uh, a, yeah, just wins yeah. only. This is a wins <laughs> only book. It's not a tell all, but it's a wins right. only. Like, well, no. Of course, yeah, there are, there are, there is an appetite for that, especially with people who are trying to maybe talk about how great their company or product is, right? But um, yeah, I that's marketing. That... That's <laughs> marketing. That's not yeah. literature. Yeah, exactly. So I was wondering, I picked out two sections for your read, and I was wondering if you would be willing to read from On Second Thought and from the page 106, How I Picture It. Oh, sure, sure. I'm trying to tell you the truth here, so let me go back. I said it was enough to be a mother. No, I said it was enough to be known as a mother, to be mostly invisible. But was it enough for me to know I was a poet? Is it ever enough if our inner lives... And our lives, aside from being parents, are just that, inner lives, lives aside, hidden pictures? I wonder, how will my children feel if they think that being seen as a mother wasn't enough for me? What will they think of me, knowing I wanted a full life, a life with them, and a life in words, too? I'm dog-earing a realization in my mind now. I don't think fathers are asking themselves these questions. Fathers don't feel guilty for wanting an identity apart from their children because the expectation is that they have lives outside of the home. I'm starring and underlining this fact for future reference. Hmm. Um, And then page 106. And this is one of the italicized sections in the book. I kind of, this is a series in the book that they're they're sort of the more poetic um, Mm -hmm. sections. and, And it's really me trying on different metaphors for what this experience of my marriage ending has been like for me. And they all begin with how I picture it. And it's sort of like, well, maybe it's like this, or maybe it's more like this. I'm just trying to kind of get a grasp on, on what this is. How I picture it, our marriages are nesting dolls too. We carry each iteration, the marriage we had before the children, the marriage of love letters and late nights at dive bars and train rides through France, the marriage we had after the children, the marriage of tenderness but transactional communication, who's doing what and when and how, and early mornings and stroller walks and crayon on the walls and sunscreen that always needs to be reapplied, the marriage we had toward the end before we knew there was an end the marriage of the silent treatment and couch sleeping in the occasional update email. Somewhere at the center is the tiniest doll, love, 
the love that started everything. It's still there, but we'd have to open and open and open ourselves, our together selves, to find it. I can't bear to think of it in there somewhere, the love, like the perfect pit of some otherwise rotten fruit. <laughs> Thank you. Every time, every time I hear that or read that. So this book is about identity, uh, living a creative life and valuing that, women's work, invisible labor, all these versions of ourselves we carry around, um, which is what you describe as nesting dolls, divorce, motherhood. I mean, so many things. I'm just the tip of the iceberg right there. So can you, do you know how many of those themes or those ideas you were already aware of when you began working at, you know, on the manuscript and how much, how many of them surprised you during the writing process? I love to think about, you know, what you knew going in and then what you discovered. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I knew what my material was. Like I knew that it was going to, to sort of be about selfhood. I knew motherhood was going to be a huge part of it. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, this book is like a love letter to my kids. I knew my marriage and divorce were going to be part of it and trying to sort of solve an unsolvable mystery in some ways. And I knew that my work and my art would be part of it. I'm not sure um, I knew just how feminist this book would be when I started writing it. And I found myself really leaning into, into that. Um, and I think one of the things that surprised me most, because every time I write something, I'm always like, oh, that's what this is? Like, that's, <laughs> that's part of the fun of it, is like, mm -hmm. you don't quite know what you're doing when you start, and it starts to take shape over time. And I think one of the things that surprised me most about this book was how the process of writing about all of that material and sort of synthesizing it through this sort of formal process changed the way I thought about mm. that material. Like, you know, I, I don't want to give too much away. It's not like there's some sort of like happy ending where everything is solved at the end of the book. But I did come to understand through the process of writing the book and kind of piecing all of these things together and seeing the connections between things that that the healing I thought I needed closure to get, I don't actually need sort of ultimate closure or all the answers to access it. Like the potential for that is in me. And so in that way, the writing about the material was really empowering and that for me was surprising. Mm. Wow, yeah. Uh, that's very interesting. I think that uh, it, it's, I remember when I was younger and I was acting, I kept thinking, when I get this part, when I get this movie, when I get this, then mm. then my real life will begin. That's, mm -hmm. that's when it's really going to begin. And then I think somewhere in my mid-20s, I realized, whoa, this is the life I'm living. This is the creative life right now. You know, yes. and that's kind of what it reminds me of. Yes, it's like the Pinocchio syndrome of like, when will I be a real yeah. boy? When will yes. I be a real boy? If this happens, then I'll be a real writer. If this happens, yes. I'll be a real person. I'll be a real whatever. Right. And it's like, or actually, like a real I, mom or yes. really succeeding or yes. something as a mom with, yes. a, with two children alone. Right, exactly. 
Yeah. And I, that brings up, um, this is just a small point, but I'm, I'm curious and I, I, I hate to ask in a way, but I think it's important to cover it. You know, in some people ask, which is one of the sections, you pose this question that you anticipate getting, which is, why didn't you write more about person X or event Y? And in this, in this case, I'm thinking it's probably your ex-husband, you know, and I want to know what you've come to believe about what we quote, oh, readers and what we don't. Yeah, you know, I was thinking people who read this book who know me personally might be surprised by things that I chose to include or didn't, because there's mm -hmm. certainly a lot more than is between the covers of this book, right? I mean, more mm -hmm. good, more bad, more ugly, more beautiful, just more. And, and people who don't know me won't know where the holes are necessarily, but people who do will be like, yeah, and then the next thing that happened was this, and why is that not in the book? <laughs> yeah. And and I guess, you know, it's funny, like the word owe is funny. I actually, I don't think we owe the reader specific details about our lives. Like, uh, mm -hmm. in some ways, I don't think we really owe the reader anything. You know, it's not a deposition. Mm -hmm. It's it's a book. Something that my therapist talks about a lot, and I write about this in the book, is boundaries. And apparently it's something I have a lot of work to do with. But I think that applies in writing as well, right? Like we mm. get to have and hold boundaries about what we talk about, what we write about, what we say, what we don't say. And, and we get to, you know, curate our own experience and choose what we want to reveal and what we get to keep to ourselves. So there are things particularly related to my children in this book that I just don't talk about because ultimately it's their story to tell or not to tell mm -hmm. as they age and, and come into their own experience. And I'm always trying to approach these things from, you know, even writing about painful things and even writing about people I don't like much. I'm still an empathetic human and I can still approach the storytelling with compassion and think, how would I feel if? I were in that person's shoes, what would I feel comfortable with them sharing? And sometimes, sometimes I just tell because I feel like I need to, it's more about telling my story. But I, I really do, I think we don't owe so much as, it's, it's really a privilege to be let in on someone else's private life. And I think about that when I'm reading books and interviews with other writers or musicians or artists or actors too. What you choose to tell me, you know, I'm honored that that you shared that and, and I wasn't owed that information. Right. And also we can protect ourselves as writers uh, when you start doing so much press for this and people ask you about it. You haven't told everything. You've chosen what to share as we all do when we're writing memoir and it doesn't have to be all of you that you've basically dumped out in the story you have protected some things and kept it for yourself because it's a curated story about a curated experience right right yeah so something that fascinates me has always fascinated me as I've tried different genres of writing is um, that sense we get as we get better and more accomplished and experienced about when to know something is finished. Mm. And, you know, I remember taking, <laughs> listening to Ellen Bass at my master's program talking about, um, oh. 
I yeah, love her. I know. <laughs> yeah. She she mentioned something about um, you know, when the poem is done, I'm gonna I'm gonna mangle this, but essentially, you know, can you take something out? It's like can you get rid of that last sentence or thought, like a bay leaf at the end of a recipe, right? Can you just take it out? And and I was fascinated by that because I think as an earlier writer I didn't know is this too much? Am I telling too much? Am I not telling enough? And so I'm wondering, as a poet and a memoirist, you're making decisions about what to leave in and what to take out and how to get the reader to understand what you want to convey. But it can sometimes be a challenge for writers to know how much to include so the reader gets it and how much to remove so we're not hitting them over the head. And so in your work, how do you find that balance? And how do you know after all these years doing this that you have hit it? I mean, you know, the the sort of flip answer is you never really know. Um, mm. You never really know. It's for me, it's intuitive. You know, mm. when I am I no longer unsatisfied <laughs> with this piece of writing? Like, do I feel like it's doing the work it came to do, whether that's like aesthetic work, psychic work, artistic work, rhetorical work? But but ultimately, if I sat with a thing for years, would I continue to go back and fiddle with it? Probably. I mean, mm. if I could go, if I were writing my first book of poems now, would I would I write those poems the same way? No, mm -hmm. I absolutely would not. They wouldn't look the same. They wouldn't sound the same. Do I want to revise that book to sound like me now because I know more and I'm older and, and more experienced? No, because each book... Each poem, each essay, each story is a kind of time capsule <laughs> of the writer you were at that time. And I think there's something really exciting for me, both as a writer and as a teacher of writing, looking at someone's body of work, right, mm -hmm. over time and seeing how maybe some of the same themes come up. But they maybe that they're experimenting with form in exciting ways, or maybe formally they actually kind of stay in a same the same kind of comfort zone, but they're becoming more wide ranging in their subject matter. And so I, I try not to sort of beat myself up about when something is done. It's done when I feel satisfied with it, and I'm you know a firstborn daughter, so it's not easy <laughs> for me to feel satisfied with things. Mm -hmm. I think I hold myself to a fairly high standard, but it is still intuitive. And I think, you know, it's where I lean on poetry, even even with this book, I have to be comfortable leaving some things out. And that's where I'm like, mm -hmm. well, in a poem, we compress or we, we elide syntax by moving from one thing to the next and not necessarily worrying about having a lot of, you know, cartilage or connective tissue mm -hmm. between these two images or ideas. We we rely on juxtaposition and we trust the reader to mm -hmm. be smart and imaginative and to do some of the work and to participate. And I believe in that when I'm when I'm publishing poetry, I trust my reader to show up and do some of the work. And I'm I'm counting on the readers of this book to do that too. And I think sometimes we second guess ourselves and, and what we're really second guessing is the reader and not, mm. not trusting that they're going to get what we're handing them. And I think, you know, that's, it's a cynical thing to think that we have to give them everything. I think mm. we're, we're, we as readers are ready to be handed some things and know what to do with it. And so mm. I try to keep that in mind as a writer too. 
Yeah, I love that. I think readers, smart readers, like to do some work. We yes. like to do, I was teaching a class on um, memoir and the idea of sort of let them be the detective. We all kind of like to chew on something. And so it's okay not to hand everything over and, and tell everything. You can get the clues out there, the breadcrumbs, and the reader will enjoy putting them together and solving that or not solving it. Yes, like that that sense of discovery is what I love to encounter in a book. And when someone spoon feeds me something, mm. I I don't get to be an active participant in the same way. I you know, I don't I don't actually want to go on autopilot inside a book. <laughs> I don't. Right, right, right. That's a different genre. I think, I think so too. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. So when looking back uh, to the beginning of your process writing this, do you, can you remember what main misgiving you might have had or concern you had about approaching the manuscript? Was there anything that worried you the most? Uh, size and scope, I think. Mm. You know, as a poet, I'm so I, I sort of congratulate myself when I get to a second page of a poem <laughs> um, because my I'm a whittler, as I say. So as I revise, things tend to get smaller. And, and actually, this book did the same thing. It shrank. I like to compress things. I like to take away. I like to give the suggestion of something and let the reader do more work. And so if, if there was any, um, I mean, of course, it's, it's also a sensitivity thing. I was nervous about like, you know, what, what can I say? What shouldn't I say? Mm -hmm. How will I be judged, perhaps, for what I say or don't say. And so there's all of that that I think gets pulled in when you're writing about your life and it's really personal. But from a writerly perspective, size and scope and structure were the things that concerned me the most. And once I kind of wrapped my head with like pages spread all over the floor and a friend on a Zoom and a high, you know <laughs> various highlighter marker colors trying to find the sort of different threads that I wanted to assemble this book with once I had the form I a lot of the fear dissolved because I thought well now I know hmm. um, and and form is always the sort of scaffolding that I lean on in a poem too so that it makes perfect sense to me that that was something I felt some trepidation about and also something that gave me a lot of comfort once I once mm -hmm. I discovered something that worked for me Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like you had your suitcase, right? Like right. You knew where it was all going. So now that you're at the end of this process, I mean, the beginning of your, you know, book publish publication process is coming. But what advice would you like to share with memoirists that you can leave them with? Well, I mean, I guess my advice, regardless of genre, and the, the thing I always tell my students is to take risks and trust your own instincts, um, because there will always be voices in the room and at the table who want something different than what you have in mind for yourself and and you can only write your book you know you can't mm -hmm. write someone else's book and i think the the idea of form and content being really connected is so important because my feeling is like if you want my story you have to get it the way that i want to tell it you don't mm -hmm. get to have the story without the form like those two things really go hand in hand um, the best writing advice I think I ever got was from the late Stanley Plumley, who was a friend um, mm -hmm. and a mentor to me as a poet. And he wrote in an email to me years ago, and I go back to this all the time. He wrote, stay deep within yourself and stay alone there. 
That is where your poems come from. And that has nothing to do with an audience. You are the audience. And that I remind myself of constantly. And and he wrote that to me after Good Bones went viral. And it was <laughs> advice I needed because my readership became sort of like instantly wider, mm-hmm. kind of overnight. And I had all of these ideas very suddenly in my head about what reader expectations might be or what people might want from me and from my work in the future and it was kind of paralyzing yeah i would imagine you know like how do you follow that when mm-hmm. n- nothing like okay i've peaked nothing i ever write again <laughs> will be read that widely and i can either completely choke on that idea or i can treat it as something really freeing and say oh well not as many people will ever read anything I've ever written again. How freeing. Now I can just do whatever I want. Mm. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. The stakes are low. And so sort of not not thinking about audience is something that I feel really strongly about because again, as we were talking about earlier, it's not marketing text. It's yeah. not spec writing, right? It's mm. it's something I'm ultimately doing for myself. And then when I'm happy enough with it, I'll let other people read it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a really good internal gauge, right? That's coming back to ourselves is kind of hard to do sometimes, but it's it can always be there for us, right? It doesn't depend on anyone else or anything on the outside. Yes, yes. Yeah. So what memoirs have you have you found to be really important to you that you would like to shout out? Oh, oh my gosh, so many. So (laughs) I've been thinking about books as permission slips, you know, Mm. so like, when we're innovating and taking risks with form and content, ideally, we're opening doors for other writers to do the same thing. And so I've been thinking about um, books that were permission slips for me, as I was writing, you could make this place beautiful, like the books that I read that made me think, okay, I can do this. And not only can I do this, I can do it my way, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like. And so a handful of those would be Blow Your House Down by Gina Frangello, for sure. And The Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Um, the Two Kinds of Decay by Sarah Manguso, who's also a, an amazing poet. Um, the Chronology of Water, I mean, duh. What do you get to, I mean, come on. Um, and another one that I think actually, I think my friend Kelly, Kelly Sundberg recommended this one to me was while I was beginning the process of writing this book was Safekeeping by Abigail Thomas. Ah, yes. It's yes. such a beautiful book. And so those are just a handful. But really, because I'm a novice, honestly, it's like I've been writing for years and years and years and years and years. And yet this genre is is new to me as a writer. Mm-hmm. I really just steeped myself in memoirs and mm-hmm. and essay collections and just tried to kind of like, try to get a sense of what shapes and movements were possible for myself. So I really just dove in for the better part of a year and, and read just poetry and nonfiction. And, and those are just a few. You know, it's true about the books as permission slips. I, I have had that experience even writing short pieces in Lit Mags where I think, you can do that? I can do that? Yes. You know, I, I want to try that. You know, like like who wrote these old rules in my head, these, these dusty rules that I think exist? Maybe it's from school, you know, from way, way, way back um, in elementary school where I thought writing had to be a certain thing. But it is so 
it's so heartening to see different forms like that. It just excites me so much. So I really appreciate that comment. And also, I want to say, before we get to the very tail end uh, of this interview in a moment, I just want to say, like, the way you write about your kids. I have two kids, and, you know, it is a concern. You know, how are you going to bring them into your work or, or leave them out? And and I'm an older sister, too. And so I really appreciate you claiming that, that role, the older sister <laughs> role, because I've got it, like, uh, I've got it so bad in my family. And... And the kid thing, you know, you your tenderness for your children is just like permeates everything. It's just like we didn't talk about them in this interview, but they're they're on every page and the love there is on every page. Oh, thank you. Honestly, that that means a great deal. Mm. So where can people find you? Where's a really good way to connect or find your work? Well, now that um, the social social media landscape is sort of imploding, it's a little challenging, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) Um, I'm on, I think, all social media platforms as Maggie Smith Poet, which helps people find me and not the dame. And so it's Maggie Smith Poet because I'm, you know, the other one. And I'm maggiesmithpoet.com online. So that's probably um, the easiest way for people to find me. Okay. And then lastly, and you knew I was going to ask you to do this, but I would love for you to to end our time together by reading Good Bones. I would be happy to. And I'm so glad you told me that you wanted me to do this because I was actually trapped in a room on an NPR interview once where they asked me to read a poem. (laughs) And I I don't have this poem memorized. I have no poems of mine memorized, to be honest. So um, yeah, oh my gosh, that would make me so upset if someone asked me to read my work and I didn't have it I did not have it handy. And I was sort of doing this little (laughs) tap dance while I Googled my own poem (laughs) on the internet so I could read it off of my laptop. So So lucky that it was a viral (laughs) poem. You probably found it in seconds. Thank goodness it's Googleable. So no, I have actually I have the book handy. Thank you. Uh, This is Good Bones. Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake, life is short, and the world is at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you. Though I keep this from my children, I am trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. (sighs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was just so lovely. And I... I just, I'm so excited to share our conversation and thank you so much. And great, great best of luck with this amazing new book. Uh, I so appreciate it. This has been a joy. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.